Welcome to our podcast, Regional Spotlights Middle East. I'm Laura, and I'm with Mark Razali. Mark Razali organizes a walking tour in downtown Beirut, which tells the story of a controversial reconstruction project that changed the urban and social fabric of the area. Mark, um, you're organizing a tour in uh, Beirut for tourists mainly. It's called The Layers of a Ghost City. You're also a graduate from the American University of Beirut in political science. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about you and your background? So my name is Mark Razele. I'm 21 years old. I uh, lived my entire life in the northern suburbs of Beirut, so also known as the Christian bubble. So I was really in this uh, closed bubble my entire life. So. Um, I went to AUB for my studies and this is when the glass bubble shattered, I guess, when I realized I felt like I was lied to the entire, my entire life. Um, so I started out as an engineering student, very conformist to, uh, you know, uh, the path for a lot of students here. You, you know, do engineering, you get a good job in Dubai and that's it. Uh, or take over with the family business. My father's an engineer. Uh, but when my bubble shattered, when I realized that I was really, I was very uh, narrow-sighted, I guess. One year later, I had already switched to political science. Um, and I, at the time, you also had before I, right before I started um, university, you had the trash crisis that was happening in August 2015. So it was really, I was, it was the first time I was actually politically active in a protest. And, you know, all of these changes happened in a very brief period of time, either right before I started my studies or during the first year. Um, so yeah, eventually I studied, I switched to political science and when I first switched I decided to start um, the walking tour because I knew that I wanted to be active, I wanted to do something even if the protest stopped. Um, and yeah, I ended up with the format of a walking tour, uh, which was initially supposed to be a walking tour for locals. It was supposed to be like a walking tour was just a friendly uh, word for, you know, protest a weekly protest mm. um, but that I mean things didn't really turn out the way I wanted to um, so yeah and today it's more of a walking tour mainly the people that join are foreigners that are living here studying here or just visiting uh, very few Lebanese people actually join and um, but yeah the tour has been running every Saturday approximately for the past two years if not more so the tour focuses on the reconstruction of downtown Beirut uh, that happened after the civil war in uh, 1990 and specifically on the project, the development project called Solidaire. Solidaire. Um, could you explain what is Solidaire? So um, the war supposedly ended in 1990 and in 1991 this debate about reconstruction had already, I mean, it, it already started before the war ended but in 1991 it was the peak. So the Lebanese cabinet made the, uh, a government body called the Council for Development and Reconstruction. They made it the government body in charge of the reconstruction. So what the CDR did, what this government body did, supposedly an impartial government body, is that they commissioned Dar al-Handasa, the biggest engineering company in the Middle East. Um, they commissioned them to draw or design a master plan for the reconstruction of downtown Beirut. So by 1991, you had the legal decree, two legal decrees that were issued that actually set legal limits to an area called the Beirut Central District or the downtown area. So by 1991, this legal area was created and there was one master plan developed for the entire area, for the reconstruction of the entire area. And Solidar basically is the private development company that was in charge of the implementation. So eventually this master plan, true, was commissioned by a government body, but it was never implemented by any other government body. Um, it was given to, uh, it was a concession given to a private company called Solidaire. And Solidaire is a French acronym. Solidaire, if you divide it, it stands for Société Libanaise de Développement et Reconstruction de Beirut. So, 
basically this is the a very brief introduction to the Solidar project. But the project is, uh, I mean, was and still is very controversial. And this is what I say at the beginning of the tour because the man behind the project, the man behind the idea, the man that put this project under his wing, and if not had the majority of the shares, that's debatable, um, is Rafiq Hariri. Rafiq Hariri, the Lebanese Saudi billionaire who came back to Lebanon after the war to become our prime minister for, I mean, more than 10 years maybe. Before he was assassinated. Before actually. he was assassinated. Yeah, so actually he was mm. he came back to Lebanon after the war and he was our prime minister from 1992 till 1998, then from 2000 till 2004. And one year later, in 2005, he was assassinated, um, his motorcade, um, I mean, through a car bomb, I guess, yeah, the motorcade. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the whole tour because uh, people actually need to come on your tour to see. But we start with the St. George's Hotel, uh, which is an abandoned hotel, uh, was very thriving during the Golden Age and is now completely abandoned. And when we start, we can see this banner where it's written Stop uh, Solidaire. So who, who put this banner on and what does, what does that mean? What does that represent? And so why do you have this Stop Solidaire sign? So the St. George was a hotel that was built um, in 1920. They started building in 1929. The hotel opened its doors in 1931 when Lebanon was still under the French mandate. Um, and it was always known as one of the most luxurious hotels in Beirut. So after um, after the war ended, um, the uh, hotel happened to be right outside of the legal limits or route, right outside of the downtown uh, that Solidar was in, um, in charge of rebuilding. So two legal decrees were issued in the 90s, one that allows Solidar to build the Zaytuna Bay project, which is this high-end exclusive uh, marina built on the coast. Um, it consists of you know, a port for the boats, for the yachts, of course, of the rich people that live in the area, like cafes and restaurants. So you had one legal decree that allowed Solidaire to build this project based on a shady deal uh, that happened with the government. But bear in mind that you have the same man behind the government and behind the company. Um, and a legal decree that allows the owner of the St. George Hotel, which is really, I mean, it's a very romanticized building. It stands as a symbol for a lot of things for a lot of people in the city, whether a symbol of, you know, the golden age of Beirut, you know, this romanticized era as well, mainly beginning of the 60s up until 1975. So for a lot of people, the hotel really symbolizes the golden age of Beirut, although definitely it was not a golden age for everyone. Um, so the owner got the decree to renovate the hotel. And basically what happened is that he didn't sorry, have only the right to renovate the hotel, but also rehabilitate the St. George Bay. So the hotel, since it was built in 1931, was known for its bay, the St. George Bay or St. George Marina, uh, and access to the beach. So you cannot have the Zaytuna Bay project and the St. George Bay. Now, a lot of people would simply ask, but I mean, especially if they've never been to the project and if they're just listening to, um, to this interview, um, if the hotel is outside of the legal limits, how did the clash happen? Well, actually, the Zaytuna Bay project, the port for the boats extends outside, I mean, beyond the legal limits mm -hmm. and blocks the historical access to the beach that the hotel had since 1931. Mm -hmm. So you have a legal war that has been ongoing for a long time, I mean, starting in the 90s between Solidarity and the owner of the St. George. A lot of people ask me, so the Solidar St. George uh, conflict is like a political one. Is he is the owner of the hotel Marinette Christian and since Hadidi is behind the company, he's Sunni Muslim. I'm like, no, 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 guys, really, not everything is about sectarianism. They also ask, are they from two opposing political parties? Also not the case. It's purely about private interest versus private interest. I mean, private profit versus private profits. And this is why it's really important for me to mention that um, although today the Zaytuna Bay is, you know, criticized as um, more or less of an exclusive public space, uh, I mean, in quotation marks, the high-end space on the coast in the 60s and 70s was the St. George Bay. So basically the Zaytuna Bay of the 60s was the St. George Bay and the guy wants, the owner of the St. George still wants this area in front of it for private profit. 
and this is something that I try to do in a subtle way, sometimes very explicitly during the tour, that guys, come on, let's stop looking at Lebanon only through sectarian lens. Not everything is about Muslim versus Christian. And maybe and, and that and for that stop it was a bit subtle, but eventually I end up saying, you know, sending this message in the most explicit way possible towards the end. Um, so for me, I really like this talk when I talk about the conflict between the St. George and the Zaytuna Bay and why you have the huge solidarity. And I love this talk for two main reasons. The first one is that I'm really showing my commitment to being critical because I personally tend to be uh, inclined towards the opposer side. So I'm deconstructing a cliche from the opposer side that the St. George is representing the public interest versus the private interest of few, like uh, the few people behind the Solidar company. So for me, it's like a way you know, to show my commitment to trying to be as objective as I can. Um, and also because it's really, it's like the, really when the tour starts, because you have this huge stop solidarity and you're starting at a very shallow level. They already only know the basics about the company and they just, you know, it's a, I mean, if, like just a huge stop solidarity and it's as simple as that. So now they know what solidarity stands for. But I know that the next time they're gonna pass next to this sign after the tour, that they, after three hours and a half or four hours, it would mean so much more than just a huge subsidy there sign. They would really have a huge flashback when reading it. So this is why I like this top uh, at the beginning of the tour. Okay. Are you talking about um, a lot about its private interest versus private interest a lot. Um, how do you think this Solidar project has affected the downtown population of uh, Beirut? Um, the Solidar project definitely, I mean, it not just affected the population of the downtown, it just removed the population of the downtown. So when we, if we ask the question, how did it affect, it implies that they're still there, then they're affected. They're no longer, the, you know, they're no longer there. They were... I mean, kicked out, more or less. I mean, they did fled willingly the area when the war started. But when a lot of them wanted to come back to claim their properties after the war, this is when, you know, Solidar um, kind of prevented them uh, to do that. So how did Solidar affect the social fabric of the city? Well, it removed the old, you know, group or community of people living there and just built a new center and also removed their buildings, of course, their way of living, everything about it, just, you know, it's a blank page. They erased everything to build a new center that has a very... Uh, different and very niche, I mean, it's a very niche vision that, and it caters for a very specific high class of people. Uh, it caters for a specific lifestyle. Um, instead of being, sorry, a place of, you know, that caters for people from different social classes, religious sects and nationalities. And of course, it was not the perfect place of inclusion. I mean, definitely you had some sections of society that were excluded before the war from the center, but more or less, I mean, it was a good example of coexistence on all levels, sectarian, social class, uh, and so on. So they destroyed, you know, the houses, the apartments, the clinics, the shops of the people that have been living there and their parents have been living there, or they just moved to the big city. I mean, they just destroyed this entire center to build a new center that caters for a very high class of people, mostly rich people from Gulf countries. Would you say that actually um, this place before uh, being rebuilt, so downtown Beirut before being rebuilt and, and um, completely emptied um, of its original inhabitants, uh, would you say that this actually affected a division in Beirut? Because you say it was really mixed before. I mean, I can understand your question in two ways. I can understand, you know, that the new center uh, reinforced the divisions, meaning the division of, you know, the geographical distribution of people over a, a space or an area then not really I mean they just kicked everyone out so you just move to the northern part to the northern extremities to the southern extremities or the eastern extremities so not really I don't think the only thing that uh, the only division that Solidar not actually reinforced but created is the opposer supporters to the project so in terms of the already existing divisions that have that were there before the war and during the war not really it and reinforced more the divisions between between social classes, although we're not talking about you know Lebanese people that are living in this in these you know in, in this newly built center, but it's just now you have a huge concrete proof in front of you of the social inequality.
inequalities that you have in the country. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, it played uh, a role in uh, class division rather than. I mean, class divisions. I mean, were exi- I mean existed uh, definitely before the war, but after the war, I mean, it just got worse. It just got worse. Maybe better somehow, but mainly worse because. Um, yeah, I feel like the the Solidar downtown is just a. I guess a symbol of a new division, a post-war division. You know, personally, I, for me, when I look at it, it's, it's like the new battle is not going to be between, you know, political party A and political party B or religious sect A or religious sect B. For me, it's like a big concrete proof of, you know, this is going to the next war is going to be about something else. It's going to be about social class. That's how I see it. One of the things I remember you saying on the tour, uh, or reinforcing on the tour, was that Beirut is very much a neoliberal city. And the whole division between the classes that you see that's so evident in the downtown area, this is something that I find parallels with in London. For example, where a lot of the properties in the central sort of city limits similar to downtown Beirut, they lie empty because they've been bought by foreign investors that don't really use it as residences but for, for various other purposes. And this creates a huge class division in London as well because people that live in the city, they're either concentrated in tower blocks because they're from a particular social class or if they have the money, they go a little bit outside the city centre and buy properties and commute in. But it seems to be a fairly universal thing that's happening you know, across the world. So at what point do you think is the tipping point where populations begin to clock you know, the social processes that are happening in order to provide some sort of resistance to it? And is that, do you think that tipping point would be slightly different in Beirut than it would in other parts of the world? For there to be an organized resistance maybe to this sort of um, neoliberal economy? Yeah. Um, now, I really like that you asked the question because I always try to, you know, remind people that, okay, we get it, Beirut, uh, I mean, Lebanon is a, you know, very corrupt country, corruption happens explicitly and all of that, but this is not a Lebanon-specific problem. So I was giving one example when, you know, with investors destroying an archaeological site to proceed with their project. I make sure every week to mention that the, the nature of the problem is not specific to Beirut, it's specific to any big neoliberal city like Beirut. And, of course, to mention that the Solidaire model is not the first or the last one of its kind. Now, I was mostly in talking about the context of post-conflict reconstruction. So to answer your question, I think that definitely the patterns that you're talking about, they're, they're happening everywhere, whether it's in London or in Beirut or in any other city around the world. But I think that I can only talk about the Lebanese context because I think, I'm, I mean, this is the, the context that I'm most knowledgeable about, is that you really have so many other issues that are pressing that it's, I mean, if you look at London, I mean, you have a big, um, more or less big middle class, at least compared to Lebanon. I mean, you have basic services that, I mean, you're getting basic services from the government. So you have the luxury of, you know, opening this debate and acting upon it, trying to see how to act upon it, at least. Here, this debate, this fight is, unfortunately, it makes sense, but it's only monopolized um, in, in a, by a very small circle of people that are, you know, urban planners, professors at universities. So really people from, you know, middle, upper classes that have got a really good education, that are either political activists, architects, urban planners, and have the luxury in their personal lives because they, on a personal level, have the luxury of, you know, spending, to spend time uh, and resources and, you know, they're uh, thinking about this topic and, you know, uh, trying to see how to act upon it or how to mobilize, how to create a resistance. So you don't have it on a big scale. So you can't have a resistance because it's only a few educated people um, that are trying to start a fight. But I mean, you need an army. The army is not there. The army is preoccupied with, you know, other pressing matters. And it's understandable, unfortunately. And it's the same for a lot of other social, economic and political problems. And plus, the thing about this topic specifically is that the consequences, I mean, okay, maybe the downtown in itself, and if you look at the area, the downtown area and its surroundings, it's, a, I mean, a very obvious, sharp contrast. But if we talk about, you know, this pattern in general, the bigger picture of what's going on, not just, you know, reduce it to the downtown area, the consequences of this pattern or the, the evolvement of this pattern, you can't really see it at once. It's like a very 
slow, toxic, some might argue toxic process, okay? So, and Lebanese people, they need to see the trash in front of their doors to protest to remove the trash, you know? So, also, it needs to be visible and it's not. It's a very, you know, subtle, slow process compared to other issues, uh, social issues or... Do you think the Lebanese diaspora around the world might actually play a role in that because there's so many populations of Lebanese people in America or different parts of Europe, you know, having seen what living is like in those societies when they come back, do you think they might bring some change with them? From a more academic point of view, the Lebanese diaspora they does play a role in advancing, supporting initiatives that you know work on uh, solving social issues, social problems. Whether it's uh, I don't know the uh, funding an NGO that supports the LGBTQI plus community. It can be you know funding a, whatever a project, an NGO. Definitely, they do play a role, but um, definitely it's a very limited one. But they definitely, I mean, they would either be neutral or an agent for change, but they wouldn't affect it negatively. But in my personal opinion, from like very raw data from, you know, my in informal ethnography in my personal life and the people around me, the, the Lebanese diaspora, they tend, I mean, you were saying that, you know, when they lived in cities abroad and we know where abroad is, we're talking about, you know, developed countries, mostly, you know, the West. And let's not start where, you know, by the question, where, what do I mean exactly by that? Um, but they mostly come here and they criticize. It's a bit condescending and it's a bit annoying because it's not the constructive, it's not the constructive criticism. It's not the, uh, you have very few people that actually try to, you know, send the mess their message or their idea in a pragmatic way, in a constructive way, in a constructive manner, and in a way to actually lead to something. It's just, they criticize. And I live somewhere better than here. Great for me. I'm leaving in a week. And you see it on, on like really, even in the comments on Facebook today, I was, uh, there was um, like a report done about the corruption in Lebanon in the past year. I mean, really, it's a shocking, shocking, uh, not really shocking, but very sad uh, report about, you know, um, all of the money that is being wasted in government. Anyway, it's about corruption. And I was reading a bit in the in the comment section, and you see people uh, that are you know writing their comments in French if they live in France. And I kind of I started looking at the profile of these people just to make sure that I'm not you know misjudging the the, the background of these people. And they're just like yeah, in Lebanon you just don't know how to handle your problems. Um, yeah, if uh, like the Lebanese people should wake up and do something about it. And this very like condescending approach that does not really uh, lead anywhere, you know? So that's my personal view. But if you look at diaspora studies and so on, they definitely are considered an agent of change, but not a main one, definitely. Would you say that uh, the tour you're organizing, which was uh, first aimed at Lebanese people, yeah. which is not attracting, as you were saying, more international people, so tourists and students, would you say that is participating in changing actually this, this point of view, this, this view on, on Lebanon? Initially, one of the goals was to have a group of people that are not from this high uh, socioeconomic class that I consider the average citizen. Uh, and definitely by that, I mean mostly people from the middle class or middle lower class, but uh, but still that for me is already uh, enough. Um, so I wanted to have it just to have people present in this area for a certain period of time, even if it's just four hours, because because I talk about myself, I feel provoked that this area does not cater for people like me and I'm not really wanted there. So it was like a middle finger to have a group of people that are also, you know, not supposed to be there, but were there anyway. So this is why I call it a silent protest. I don't mean the protest and the, you know, common understanding of what the protest is, you know, walking on the street with the banners and so on. So one of the goals was to have a group of people that otherwise, if it wasn't for the tour, they wouldn't have any excuse to be there. Second of all, to give a fresh perspective, because we all know that the St. George was luxurious in the 60s. We all know that Solidar is, uh, I mean, Hariri was behind it. We all know that they destroyed Beirut's archaeology, like very big words. And talking, you know, like in this very, on this very shallow level, is really dangerous. You need to dive deep into the details, be critical, and so on. So it was to offer a fresh perspective with a lot more insight. And also to, to just 
reopen the debate because a lot of people would tell you that um, the project already happened, it's too late, so why open the debate? I mean, the, the, they chose the, the Solidaire option, they went with the Solidaire option, and the Solidaire option is mostly implemented. So for me, I think that the debate should be open because exactly, I mean, okay, we, we're not going to, you know, cancel or undo what Solidar didn't build a new center. That was never, I mean, I would never thought about it this way, but I think that the least you can do to be fair to, you know, the new generation, to the people visiting, to anyone that is either living or passing through the city, explain to them how we ended up with this alien bubble. And the fourth main goal would be, I guess, to raise awareness about corruption in general, because this is one example that had already happened, but if you talk about it, maybe it would prevent other privatizations and other cases of corruption. For that goal, I don't think it's being reached because, I mean, as much as I think uh, the, such information should be accessible to people visiting or foreigners living in the city, but they won't be the agents of that change. Foreigners are not going to be the ones protesting to stop the next, you know, privatization or corrupt privatization. So that goal, unfortunately, is not being reached. The fact of having a group of people that are not supposed to be there, I mean, backpackers, even if they're just here for a week, for me, I mean, having a group of people that are not supposed to be there, I think this goal is being reached. Regenerating the debate, I think the debate really transcends Lebanese or non-Lebanese. I mean, you're explaining how we ended up with this. I think any, anyone going passing through this area has the right to know how we ended up with this Dubai-ish uh, downtown. And I feel like the debate being generated, I mean, it's also because it can be a debate about what's going to happen in Syria. I mean, it's a debate that transcends the Beirut, downtown Beirut context. It's true that I'm focusing, you know, on it, but you can easily, you know, take a step back and, and apply it, compare it, uh, contrast it with other cities, other centers, whether it's in Europe or the Arab world. Unfortunately, the reasons why Lebanese people are not joining the tour are the following. First of all, the tour is in English. So not everyone feels comfortable with English. Either they don't speak the language, they don't understand it, or they're shy about it, they're not very you know, comfortable, and they don't want to join and not be able to understand and ask their questions. Completely understandable. Second of all, Lebanese people, a lot of the Lebanese people think they already know that. Why go to a tour for four hours? And we all know what Solidar did, but they just know the, you know, the shallow level. Third of all, Lebanese people don't like to walk for three hours and a half. That's definitely worth mentioning. And more importantly, um, in terms of logistics, I don't think they will allow me to enter Nishma Square with a group of 40 Lebanese people because we're a protest. So how do I diverge the, you know, um, the, the army officers perceiving the group as a protest by saying they're Europeans? Automatically, they don't regard it as a, as a protest. But if we're a group of 40 Lebanese people, we're a protest. <laughs> we're perceived as a protest. And this is what I wanted exactly. I wanted to be perceived as a protest, but it's either no tour, because that's not an option to go with Lebanese people speaking in Arabic in front of Solidar, uh, guards, army officers, police officers, talking critically about Hariri. At some point, the Speaker of Parliament, Nabih Berre, mentioning the Hezbollah, although, you know, regardless of what I'm saying, just mentioning it in public is already like, wow. Uh, that's practically impossible. When I went to get the permit from the municipality to do the tours, so I had I knew I was playing it smart, I was being realistic. I said, yeah, it's a group for people in the downtown area. And it was like a group of foreigners, right? And I had to say yes, and it's mentioned explicitly uh, in, the, uh, in the permit, because if I said no Lebanese people, there's this assumption, of course, that everybody knows the downtown. Why? What are you going to talk about for four hours to Lebanese people? Because supposedly everybody knows the downtown, so they would have to ask questions. What are you talking about exactly during this tour? So to avoid this, all of these questions, because I know that if these questions are going to be asked and I would have to answer them, definitely they won't give me the permit. So 
I said, okay, let's start with the, you know, an English tour, mostly attracting foreigners. And then, mo- although the tour is already designed for locals to join, I mean, in terms of the content, I try not to dive deep into the general things that Lebanese people know, so I wouldn't, they wouldn't feel like this is a tour targeting only foreigners. Um, so the tour is well designed, well balanced, you know, for locals and foreigners to join alike. But it's in English and it's promoted as a, you know, a, t- a tour for, you know, but I mean, anyone living in any city, whether you guys are living in London, it's, I don't think the most common thing to do is to take a walking tour inside your city. Maybe for you guys it's interesting if it's a political tour about some topic you care about, but the people of London in general, would they join a walking tour being done or conducted in London? During your tour, you're really balancing out different uh, views, point of view. So you always present two sides, the opponents, the supporters. Did you conduct a lot of field research? How did you actually conduct your research for this tour? Was it interviewing academics, research so the process of gathering the content for the tour took around nine months but not nine months full-time I mean I was a student I had my papers I had my studies so on the side whenever I get one hour or two hour free time I would work on it so this is why it took so long and I wouldn't start the tour because I'm a bit of a perfectionist I wouldn't start the tour without knowing that for sure at least I can answer 60% of the questions and you know as as the tour is, I mean started to happen every week I managed to uh, you know to dig deeper into the research and so on but so how did I gather this information so I kind of adopted the same method I was I would use to write a paper so I used the AUB library from my university and it was mostly scholarly articles what's cool about scholarly articles because they were short straight to the point and have offered different aspects so one scholarly article about archaeology or six scholarly articles about archaeology and two about you know more of the economic aspects sorry and privatization so on one that focuses more on the politics how did the religious institutions perceive the project other politicians how did Hariri convince them the Syrian regime how did he have it? so scholarly articles were the main source of information um, I read two books as well like full books and I would only read chapters from some other books that I think are uh, interesting or I think this is an aspect that is missing but the most insightful source of information came from I wouldn't call them interviews um, because interviews implies that they were conducted in a very ethical way, um, you know, why the other person is well aware that this is an interview that I'm... It happened very informally. I mean, for example, I talked to archaeologists that worked with Solidar, against Solidar, um, a Solidar official, businessman that has shares in the Solidar company, urban planners, architects. But to give you an example of the most, maybe might some call it unethical uh, ways of conducting these interviews is that I decided to take an archaeology class at university as an elective. It was about archaeology and politics. And the professor was, um, he was a visiting professor from the US and he's apparently like a Apparently, has a, he's very famous, and he managed to convince Hans Kervers, the main archaeologist that worked with the Solidar company and is still working with them, he's the face of archaeology for Solidar, to do a tour for our class in the downtown area, and I had already started the tour. So imagine you're doing, you're seeing the archaeological sites that are included on the tour that I do with the person that is offering the opposing point of view, not opposing to the project, opposing to the, the position that I'm inclined towards. And I was asking these questions all the time and he didn't know that I do tours in downtown Beirut about this topic. Uh, he didn't know that I was going to use whatever insider information he said to me, supposedly in the context of a field trip for a class of five people. Um, but yeah, I don't know, consider it guerrilla activism, but I mean, yeah, I think people have the right to know even if I have if I'm going to be labeled as an unethical uh, interviewer it's fine I'm, I'm, I can live with it following on what you're saying is there any other tool or organization of this kind talking about this particular topic this particular there? topic the reconstruction definitely not I mean you would have let's say a conference held by the Isam Faris Institute at AUB or some other university maybe once a year once every two years um, you might find an exhibition about pictures of Beirut before the war or during the reconstruction or after the reconstruction so 
so not necessarily contrasting you know the before and after but these would be exceptions you know like maybe once a year you find a conference a photo exhibition um, that talks about it or an article in a newspaper it comes like you know whether it's an article in a newspaper or an exhibition or a, a conference you have either one of those like once or twice a year so there you don't have a um, opposition let's say or not necessarily opposition and definitely not in the in the in the format of a walking tour newspaper article really so, so these are like a, a newspaper article exhibition or conference or talk slash debate roundtable whatever you want to call it um, you have those like really very rarely so the it was just me I was kind of monopolizing the debate about it until actually recently there is a um, Amira Salah she used to be the head of the urban planning department in the Solidar um, company she's also one of the co-founders of the Arab Center for Architecture she started doing a walking tour about Solidar I mean a completely different aspect completely different uh, approach completely different themes and she's one of you know a person that worked with the company offering a completely fresh point of view although she left the company and she claims that she's detached from it but I mean I would qualify it more of a defender of the company more than a and it's good because I feel like you know the, we're, we're now monopolizing the debate now she does the tour like once every two months or every three months uh, so I think I still I kind of am but it's, it's really cool to feel like you know I'm sharing this topic with people like you have a tour for the leaning toward the opposers towards the supporters but it unfortunately it's not a weekly tour it's not there it's just you know pops up on your Facebook feed and then it disappears for like a few months and then it shows up yeah we're doing it again and it disappears so it's not really there it's not uh, I mean it's not an active initiative I would say <laughs> maybe she went on tour I went to her tour and I, I like I immediately introduced myself because I had a friend that went to the tour and and told her that there's this guy me <laughs> doing this tour and she said if I remember correctly I think this friend told me that she said yeah but he's a bit radical and I don't know what so I decided the next time there's this tour which was like four or five months later I went to the tour I told her hey I'm Mark the one that organizes the reconstruction tour and I would love for you to join and criticize my tour because believe me if you join the tour you're going to see how open to criticize criticism I am and that actually you would be doing me a favor because I'm already you know always trying to be as critical as I can and so to have someone to to set the record straight I mean let the supporters speak for themselves why should I be the one talking for them you know I really hope she does uh, join actually I think that would be a really interesting tour I think it's like you know the forces of good and evil and uh, but it's, it's going to be a pretty interesting tour if she joins So how would you, do you have initiative or do you think about reaching more Lebanese public? How, how would you do that? This is actually what I'm, I've been thinking about it for the past few weeks because I was applying for a master's program uh, in January. My mindset was that I'm leaving in September. So what have I done with this tour? It was a time to stop and reflect what does the tour stand for? So I said, okay, if I don't do it now, if I don't try to you know, attract the Lebanese people of Beirut to join, I wouldn't say I, I would have failed, but I wouldn't have reached the optimal result that I would love. So what happened is that I usually used to avoid um, doing interviews with you know, local newspapers and local journalists because I wanted to stay low-key. Uh, and I was like, okay, I mean, I, I, you know, articles are being written about the tour in La Repubblica and Italy, for example, but not in any of the newspapers here. So I took the decision a few months back when um, there's a journalist who joined the tour and she's like, hey, I'm a journalist for the Daily Star. Okay, it's a newspaper in English, but it's the newspaper in, in English in Lebanon. And I want to do um, an article about your tour. And I was actually afraid that this would mean that, you know, Solidaire is going to find out um, because I'm not sure if they do know about the tours or not. But in case they don't, they're going to find out maybe they're going to stop the tour or not. But then I was like, fuck it. What does the tour stand for if I can't have an article for Lebanese people to read? I mean, what does the tour stand for? So I was like, no, fuck it. And I was really, I, I thought that they were going to stop it. 
people read the article, they didn't stop it. That's great. So I'm still doing it. So the only way I uh, let people know about the tour is through Facebook. So you promote an event on Facebook. Yeah, it kind of operates like a business, although it's not really. I usually just, in the target audience, I would uh, select the people that like your page and their friends. So it's always, you know, it's being recycled in the same circle of people. And then at some point I was like, no, let's try something different. So I created a new audience of Lebanese people that are interested in history, politics, political science, sociology, anthropology. So I started adding all of these interests, age range, mostly young people. So it was the first time that I actually do something like a concrete change in how the tours operate to try to attract them. But and it was the tour that you guys came on. It was this tour, you know, after me trying to promote the tour for locals. Only had two Lebanese people and they left in the middle of the tour. So, but I mean, it takes time. So I mean, I'm not. I I don't think after one week, uh, you know, the the. Let's say the crowd is going to change, but uh, at least I'm starting to figure out yeah. ways to to attract Lebanese people. I mean, now that you know, when we look at the end product, it looks like a walking tour that is, you know, more exploring the political and social deeper level and or deeper layer and all of that. But initially, I wanted to protest. So, protest means, you know, like the in a group of people walking talking about the topic, whether through microphones or not. So the tour, I found it, like the idea of a walking tour, which is usually something very touristic in most cases, has a very similar format. Group of people walking, you're talking about something. Now, you always have, you know, this one person at the front of the protest, you know, uh, chanting and, you know, guiding the uh, guiding the protest. Um, being somewhere, you know, protesting somewhere where you're probably not supposed to protest. So that is how, so for me it was initially, I envisioned it as a protest, so I mean, it's not like, you know, I was, you know, I found this brilliant idea of, you know, it started out as a touristic walking tour, then it's like, let's explore the, the you know, a deeper layer, let's explore the complexity of stuff. No, it, I wanted to protest, and it was surprising to see that a touristic walking tour has a very similar format, and this is how I, for me, this is why I say it's a protest, but I use the name tour, Beirut Urban Tours, because I need to have a more friendly image for people because in order to get people it has to you know it has to be something that they're familiar with a Beirut urban protest every Saturday that's not really I mean but for me that would be a suitable name as and it would be as good as the Beirut urban tours you know I think because in Lebanon right now in the past few months or in the past year we're starting to see the repercussions of so many things including the financial crisis and so on because the government was able to mitigate the damages back then but now they can't anymore plus I mean that's one of the I mean the many factors for why right now Lebanon is, is on the verge of collapsing I mean you have a fear that the uh, the currency might collapse there you have all these rumors that the the Lebanese government is going bankrupt. I mean, um, they, you hear it from you know informal sources like yeah, some employees are being uh, dismissed. Uh, they're not being able to pay salaries in I don't know which ministry. So you're starting to hear of that. So now you're starting to get protests and even some leftist groups that had disappeared after the war and they were marginalized completely are actually starting to make a reappearance. I'm not saying it's like a really strong reappearance, but still the question should be asked next year, you know? So I think in this, you already these protests are starting now. Maybe without the big fancy words for most of the people, because you have to bear in mind that most of the people will not necessarily look at it as, you know, this is neoliberalism taking over, or this is a hardcore neoliberalism. It's more, I'm just, you know, I, I'm feeling like there's something affecting my personal life, and, and like an economic factor, and, and that's it. But I think it's starting, uh, I'm not saying it's on a rise, it's, it's gonna reach a peak and it's gonna be something significant, maybe it will, but I think that it's these movements who are appearing and they, I think they're gonna keep appearing for the next year or two, I guess. So does the, does the left play a big role in Lebanese politics as well? Is there some sort of uh, leftist government or leftist political policy that's... 
well represented? No, no, no. The leftist groups had their peak before the war. And then in 60s and 70s and maybe even before that. Maybe during the war for till a certain point. But after the war, leftist groups were completely marginalized. Completely. And people have a, 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 like a, a lot of things associated to leftist groups, you know, they think back PLO, pro-PLO, and it's really like people are scarred by, I mean, I'm not saying that it's it's a logical, uh, uh, let's say, um, connotation or rational one, but, uh, but people are scarred from anything labeled leftist and so on. And also, even more importantly, politics in Lebanon are not, the, I mean, they're not divided, I mean, yeah, it's very different than saying you have the left and the right, and it's not based on any ideology, whether political, economic. Uh, it's about you know just the feuds between these warlords slash businessmen that are you know trying to get a grip of their community and keep benefiting from the privatizations, keep the financial sector going so they can keep you know um, drowning the the country in debt because they own the banks. I mean, it, this is more about politics in Lebanon than left and right. You know? Personally, I think this is a chance for the, for the leftist groups to reappear. That's definitely a chance. And they are reappearing. Like the uh, the Communist Party, they did a big protest a few months ago. The last time they had a big protest like that was a long, long time ago. So this is a chance. How they're going to use this chance? How much will the ruling elites allow them to use this chance? We will see. But this is definitely a chance. After the war, um, downtown Beirut was the place as well where you had a lot of battles going on, and the Green Lines is located there as well, so started from there. I wanted to ask what you think that demolition and rebuilding had in terms of effect on the collective memory. Definitely, definitely it had a big effect on the collective memory, and I think the downtown is a really good um, example to talk about erasing you know collective memory because it happened on a big scale it's not like destroying one building on a street that had you know scars from the war we're talking about an entire area not just any area but the one of the main areas where the battle was happening so to be fair to be honest i mean i am interested in talking about that and i think that you know we shouldn't erase you know this memory we should talk about it and deal with it but most Lebanese people, especially in the 90s when the Solidar project emerged, did not have this point of view. Today you have a lot of young people and maybe also people from the older generation that want to look back at this dark past and learn from it, deal with it. But that was not the case for the public opinion. A lot of people were happy with the facelift, whether it's Solidar or uh, any other uh, company or any other type of reconstruction. People were happy with this complete facelift. Um, because they don't want, you know, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to deal with it simply. I mean, most of the people do not want to deal with it. And I, I can I can talk, uh, I can say that based on scholarly articles, based on my parents, based on, you know, I mean, people don't like to talk about the war. They don't like to remember the war. It was really such a dark phase for, for most of the people that... They just don't want to see any trace of it left, and it's understandable. And I mean, it's really easy for me, someone that did not live through the war. I mean, I can look at the war, study it, try to think about it critically, um, see the different sides, different points of view. But if you lived it, and your parents lived it, and you grew up in this context of with all of these factors, it's understandable. I don't know why sometimes, you know, whether journalists, academics, they're really harsh, you know, saying that yes, Lebanese people are denying and so on. Yeah, of course, that's not the way to deal with it, but that is very understandable. I think a lot of people were not sad about the that part of the reconstruction of just you know a fresh start. Mm-hmm. People like the idea of a fresh start now. Which fresh start, Solidar or another option, that is highly debatable. But I think the fresh part idea to just you know, open a new chapter. I think people were on board with that. But for the young generation, and not everyone in the young generation, but for the people from the young generation that are interested in digging this past up, you don't have the chance to do that anymore. 
And for a lot of people, I mean, yeah, we need, they would say stuff like, yeah, we need to show investors that, you know, we're out of the war. We need to show the world that we're out of the war. So this, argu this argument of modernity that I talk about um, during the tour, uh, that a lot of supporters look at the downtown area and say, this is like a concrete proof that we are modern and we're catching up with modernity. What is underlaying there is that we are not there anymore, you know? We're not a war-torn country or a country at war. We're done with all of that, we moved on. I think you're talking also about a, a form of resilience to see old buildings being destroyed or partially damaged by, by the war, kind of refuels a certain sentiment in, in the population. Um, exactly, yeah. this is what I was saying that I think that, I mean, it's really easy for outside and I, I can be considered I can be qualified as an outsider as someone that did not live the war it can be a western journalist during the war or right after or it can be just a Lebanese young person that did not live the war to criticize and say that yeah you're you know this entire war generation is denying they're not dealing with it and so on but for them they it was not a negative they didn't have you know this fresh start of you know erasing the memory was did not have a negative connotation for them it was really exactly what you were saying to show resilience that even though all of this happened we're gonna move forward so I think it's really it's really important to mention you know this point of view as well because I am one of the people that criticize you know and say that we don't we shouldn't deny and all of that but we should also acknowledge that back then according to the context back then it was really a sign of you know we're going to move forward exactly a sign of resilience definitely how is the question I mean I And I was just reading, just before the tour, I was reading something about a Syrian architect saying, we can't make the same mistake as Beirut, which was very interesting to see that just before your tour, actually, to read that before your tour. A big part for why we're not having this debate, I mean, not we as on the stable, but we on a, on a national level aren't having about this debate about memory, war, uh, amnesia, denial, and all of that, because, because of what happened after the war. I mean, it's easy to talk about, yeah, about, I mean, it's easy to talk about the amnesia, they call it amnesia approach that people have here or the government has here. But if you look at what happened after the war, I mean, most of the people ruling the country today were the people that would be involved in, you know, that, that were the main characters in, in these dark chapters. So there's no space for this discussion to be opened right now because there is a political will not to open it. So that's one. And now on an individual, personal level, and I think people are still traumatized. I mean, I think a lot of people are scarred psychologically, emotionally from what happened. So they're not ready. What needs to be done, I think how we move forward, this is just like, you know, when you find an archaeological site and you can't uh, afford to excavate it, and this happened in a lot of cases in the downtown area, so I think it's a nice comparison. So when you find an archaeological site, you don't have the funds either from the government or the investor to excavate it. Um, you're not sure if you're going to be able to integrate it or not. So what you do is that you backfill it, you just fill it with sand and you build on top so for future generations to do it. So basically you, you were neutral, you didn't destroy it you didn't save it or you know emphasize it you just okay as if we didn't find it we'll just keep it for future generations to do it I mean realistically speaking this is the best option so at least keep the informal memorials if you're not ready to deal with them when we grow up we would deal with them you know but don't take these away I think this would be a good way to move forward to just whatever we have left whether it can be structure it can be oral history it can be um, it can be pictures anything all of we have left that are that can be data for a future healing process just keep them and we'll do the healing if you're not ready we'll do it you know looking at you know the people in power and who will probably stay in power for the next I don't know how many years the war generation I mean they're still alive most of them they're I mean they're not going away anytime soon uh, so at least let's keep it constant on all levels and you know preserve the things that we the future generation might use to deal with the past that you are not ready to deal with. Just keep the buildings for us, the holiday, and just keep it for us. We'll do something with it later. That's one concrete, explicit example. Great. Um, thank you so much.
There is um, very interesting, and I and I really encourage everyone to join this this tour if you are visiting Beirut. So I think a lot of SWA students will be very interested. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I wish I could you know talk more about the content of the tour, but I guess I'll leave that for them to uh, to see in here uh, during the tour. Thank you for the for the opportunity. Thank you, Mark.